this series of sermons about beliefs, and last week we talked about the sovereignty of God, and today we're going to be talking about predestination. And I, I want to tell a story that you all have heard before, but I think it will help us sort of set the stage for everything we need to think about this morning. So you know the story, the Methodist pastor, a Baptist pastor, and a Presbyterian pastor, and they decide to go fishing. Now the Presbyterian was the new kid on the block, so he didn't know the fishing holes, and the others wanted to show him this one. So they took him out, put him in a boat out in the center of the lake, early in the morning. Well, the sun comes up, gets hot. The Baptist guy says, you know, I, I'm going to go get something to drink. And he hops out of the boat, he walks on water over to the shore and gets a drink out of the cooler. And a, a few minutes, the Methodist pastor says, uh, you know, I, I need something to drink. He does the same thing. Gets out of the boat, walks on water over the shore, uh, gets a drink out of the cooler. Now, the Presbyterian guy goes, well, you know, I'm not going to be outdone by these guys. So he stands up on the edge of the boat, and he takes a step, and he sinks right to the bottom, all the way to the bottom. And as he bobs back up to the top, he hears the Methodist say to the Baptist, do you think we should tell him about the stepping stones? <laughs> so when it comes to predestination, a lot of us think that that there is some incredible mystery here, some amazing miracle that we can't make sense of and that we don't understand. Kind of like walking on water for these guys. But here's what I want to say to you. Predestination can be understood simply. It can be understood simply if you know the stepping stones. And this morning, I want to share some of those stepping stones with you. But first of all, what, what is predestination? In its simplest form, predestination simply means if you believe, if you are a person of faith, you are that way, you are so, because God has made that possible in you. God has worked in your life in such a way that you believe. And the Bible is full of passages that indicate this. I mean, Jesus said in, in John 16, 15, he, he says, you did not choose me, which is kind of what we think. We think we choose. He said, I chose you, and I appointed you to bear fruit. In John 6, 44, Jesus says, uh, the person uh, comes to or says, no one can come to me unless the Father draw them to me. The Father has to do the work. In the book of Acts, you've got Paul the Apostle. He was preaching to the Gentiles. And, and the scripture says, all who were appointed to eternal life believe. Now you hear that? He didn't say all who believe were appointed to eternal life. He said all who were appointed to eternal life believe. God was in charge. So, so here's the question that, that, that comes to our minds. Why, why doesn't God appoint everybody? You know, why, why doesn't God choose everybody? And you, you might even quote, as I, as I often quote to God, say, God, you know, in Scripture it says, you say that, that you desire all people to be saved and all people to come to the knowledge of truth. That's 1 Timothy 2. You decide. So how do, we make, how do we make sense of it? And this, you all, this is where those stepping stones 
really help us act. So stepping stone number one. You've got to understand this. Just like there are different kinds of cereals that you guys eat in the morning, right? There are different versions of predestination. Okay, there are different ways of thinking about predestination. And good Christian people have different ideas about this. Good Presbyterians have different ideas about this. I want to tell you about the one that most folks know about. It's called double predestination. It's the idea that God from all eternity destines some people for heaven and some people for hell. Eternal degree, you can't change it. Now that's a pretty tough one. That's, that's a pretty hard thing to hear. But listen, we Presbyterians, some Presbyterians really believe that. So this is our book of beliefs. This is our book of confessions. In this book, we have 13 different documents that describe who we are and what we believe. But here's what I want you to know about this. This idea of double predestination, this understanding of predestination is in one document here. It's in one of the 13. It's in the Westminster Confession of Faith. But there are at least three or four others from the same time period who see predestination differently. And that's what I want you to understand. You can see predestination in a different way because it's right there in Scripture. So that's the first stepping stone. The second, second stepping stone. What's the purpose of predestination? I mean, why, for instance, in that passage that Emily read, why would Paul, why would the author use the word predestined? Or the word chosen? That's, that's another way of talking about predestination. Or the word elect. You hear the word elect, especially in the Gospel of Matthew. Why would God, why would God through Scripture, why would the authors use words like that? What's the purpose of predestination from the point of view of the Bible? It, it's, it's this. It has so much less to say and less to do with people who are outside the church. With people who are unbelievers or not yet believers. With people who are atheists, with people who are other faiths. It has little to do with that. You know, it has everything to do with people who are already believers. With people who already have faith. And for those of us who already have faith, predestination and the point of it is to give us assurance and to give us hope in the times in which we live. And that's exactly what you see in the passages of Scripture we looked at. The, the Deuteronomy passage. The Deuteronomy passage. Now, Deuteronomy... Moses, in Deuteronomy, is preaching a series of sermons to the people of Israel. Where is he doing this? He's doing it as the people of God are standing on the precipice of going over into the promised land. Think about who they are where they've come from. They've been slaves in Egypt. And God has set them free. And then, they weren't a community at all. God had to form them into a community. God had to give them the Ten Commandments. And so for 40 years, God has been trying to form this little band of people into a real community. And now they're standing on the edge of going over into the Promised Land. What do they see? What do they hear from their spies who come back? Oh my gosh, they've got these fortified cities. Oh my gosh, they've got these terrible armies. And they look at themselves and they think, we can't possibly do this. They're scared to death. But what does Moses say to them? Moses said, God has chosen you out of all of the people on the face of this earth to be his people, his treasured possession. Now, I don't know about you, but to me that seems kind of encouraging. 
doesn't it? I mean, that's, that's a really powerful thing to see. That the God of the universe has chosen you. This little bitty ragtag group of people to be his chosen people. What an affirmation that is. Listen, the same thing is going on over in Ephesians. Paul is writing this letter to Christians in the area of Ephesus. Now, Ephesus, Ephesus was a major, major Roman city. It was a, a trade center. It was a commercial center. And guess what was in the city of Ephesus? A huge, huge temple to the goddess Diana. In fact, it was considered one of the seven great wonders of the ancient world. And around this temple, you had a whole silver smith industry of people who were making these little idols and statues of the goddess Diana. Now listen, if you happen to be a Christian in a place like this, you are going to experience a little bit of tension about your life and about your living. In the first place, if your family happened to, to worship Diana, they, they don't want to have anything to do with you now. What do you mean you worship Jesus? In the second place, if you've been working with a trade union, you've just now lost your drive. You're a Christian? No. We don't want anybody like that. You could be thrown in jail. Your possessions could be taken. It was hard to be a follower of Jesus in those first years. Listen to what Paul says to them. He writes, For God chose us in Christ before the creation of the world. God chose you. He said God chose us. I mean, look, you all, it's kind of like if we were in school and we were the pimply-faced, nerdy kid, you know. I know some of you are like that. I can, I, you, yeah, I can see it. I know I was. That ugly, duckling kid, you know. No, in, the, in terms of the pecking order, you're like the, the bottom rung. Nobody wants to sit with you at lunch. And so here this little nerdy kid is sitting at lunch, and who comes into the cafeteria but you got the captain of the football team, and you got the captain of the cheer squad. They're the cool kids, and listen, they can sit anywhere they want to. But where do they choose to sit? On this particular day, they come and they sit over that table with nerdy little old you. And not as a stunt, they do it because they really want your friendship. How do you feel now? Wow. So predestination, look, predestination primarily for those of us who are followers of Christ, primarily has a word of encouragement and insurance about God's love. Are you following me? You with me thus far? All right, that's two. I'm going to give you another uh, stepping stone. This, if you've got that perspective now, it, it, it undercuts all of this anxiety and concern and criticism that people have about predestination. Because here's what, here's what folks say. Oh, you say you're chosen? Oh, you say you're predestined? Oh, you say you're the people of God? How arrogant. How superior. You got your nose in the air. You know, that's, that's how it feels. And, and it should feel that way because there are a lot of religious folks these days who do that. I mean, you Christian folks, it's like they think they've got God on their side and because God's on their side, they've got the truth. And that means they can treat people any, day, any way they want to. And so we've got judgmentalism, we've got criticism, we've got put down. 
And all of that in the name of God. So I understand why people feel that way. But listen, that's not what predestination is about. That's not, that's not at all what predestination is about. Predestination says that God loves you. Now what, what, what we want to think is, well, I'm worthy of that love. You know? I, don't, I don't know how it is with you all, but in my relationship with my wife, you know, sometimes I really just really want to hear from her, you know, what she, the reasons that she loves me. You know, I kind of go, oh, Lynn, would you just, why, why do you love me? You know. But what I wanted to say, you know, I was like, well, Tom, you are a big old hunk, of, hunk handsome man. I love you for your muscles. You know. I love you for your intellect and your rapier-like wit. Even though I can't remember a punchline. Oh, I know. I, I love you because of the car you drive. My minivan that has 267,000 miles on it. Yeah, I love you. You know, that's, I, wanted, I wanted to have these reasons that she loves me. You know, that's, that's not, we know that's not ultimately love. That, that, that kind of thinking breaks down, right? If you love somebody because of their looks, <laughs> Then they get old. And they sort of look like us. <laughs> you know? They get older. It's like, oh my gosh. And if you love somebody because of their intellect and their wit, you know, what happens if they're in a time of depression? You love somebody because of their possessions, what they have. What happens if there's a downturn in the economy? That can't be love. We always want to make reasons. And that's... But when it comes to God's love, God, God doesn't find any reason in you or me to love us. Here's what God says in, to the people in, Geron, in Deuteronomy. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were numerous, more numerous than other people. Truth is, you were the fewest of other people. In other words, God says, God, there was nothing about you. You weren't more morally superior. You weren't bigger. You weren't better. You didn't have more power. You aren't something special at all. God says, I loved you because I loved you. It says, Moses said, but it was because the Lord loved. Love. So look, if there's not anything in you, if there's not anything in me that is the reason God loves us, if God just loves us because God loves us, that really undercuts this whole idea that we're somehow better than other people. That we're morally superior, that we're better folks. There's another thing that undercuts, and that is this, this thinking that we are somehow as entitled. Christian people sometimes walk around with attitude because we are Christian, because we go to church, we are morally superior, we've got the truth, and everybody kind of ought to pat us on the back. And we can walk around with this sense of entitlement. There were people that were entitled in Jesus' day had the same attitude. They were the scribes and Pharisees. Remember them? What did they want? They wanted the best place at the banquets. They wanted people to tell them, you know, that they were something. They wanted the big titles, the honor. Jesus, Jesus is not about that. What, what is what does it mean to be called? What does it mean to be chosen? What does it mean to be Predestined. Is it to sit down and pat ourselves on the back and say, oh, wow, you're in and other people are out? 
But that, that's not what this is about. Predestination is about it's about holiness. Look, look at what this says. God chose us before the foundations of the world to be holy. Now holiness does mean righteousness, but it's a lot more than that. It means being set apart. In the Old Testament, when you think about holiness, you think about the priests in the temple. They, they were holy, not because they were super righteous, but because they were set apart for a particular purpose. What was the purpose? The purpose was to mediate God and people, to bring God and people together. Now, it was special people in the Old Testament. You go over to the New Testament, and those who are called to be holy, that is set apart, are not just pastors and priests and religious leaders, they're everybody, all of God's people. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood in First Peter. A holy nation, a people belonging to God. Why? That you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness. How do we declare the praises of God? By living in such a way, together, that other people see God in us. By living together in such a way that other people will see God in us. Think about Jesus. He's, he's our example. He didn't come for accolades and, and patting himself on the back. What did he come for? He said, I came to serve, to give my life a ransom for many. And because he came to serve as a religious leader, he, he was this big rabbi. The people went, wow, who is he? Who's this God he's talking about? You, you, you think about Jesus. He, he, he prayed. Religious people in that day, they, they made a big show of prayer. They, they prayed on street corners. These big, long, eloquent prayers so everybody could know how religious they were. Well, Jesus didn't do that. He prayed uh, by himself or he prayed with other people for the needs that other people had. Think about the Gospels over and over again. He prayed with those who were sick. And when he prayed, things happened. And people went, huh, Wow. Who is Jesus and who is this God he keeps talking about? And remember, Jesus had, had friends that were religious folks in the church. He had Nicodemus-type folks. But he spent a whole lot of time with folks who were not in the church of that day, who were not religious, scribes, Pharisees, prostitutes. The people that the good religious folks of that day just said didn't count for anything. And you know, because he was a religious leader, people went, who is this Jesus? And who is this God? They, they became curious. That's our job. That's our job. Being predestined doesn't mean we have a privilege. It means we have a job to do. And the job is to live together in such a way that other people see God in the way we operate. So that's the third stepping stone. So where, where does all this end up? Where, where, where does all this end up? Let me, let me express it like this. If there's nothing in you or nothing in me that we can do in order to believe, and the truth is there's not, if it's up to God, God has to make that possible in us. If we're in the church. We're active in our faith. You know, we can sin. We can mess up. But how do we stay here? We stay here. 
by the goodness and grace of God. God has to do it in us. And why does God do this? Does God do this because God? God wants to, you know, does God do this because there's something worthy in us? God does it for one reason only, because God loves. God loves you and me. God loves us. And I don't know about you, but, but I think love, I mean, that's, that's what everybody's longing for. We just want to know that we're not loved for any particular reason. We're loved because God is love. So some of you do know that occasionally I play golf. And if you've ever played with me, you know that I am pretty bad at it. So uh, I have actually come up with my own way of scoring my uh, scorecard. Because I, I can't keep, you know, score the regular way where you're counting the strokes. So I give myself, if I get, if I get to the hole, you know, it doesn't matter how many strokes it takes to get there. If I get to my, the hole, I, I give myself one point. And if I hit another golfer, then I have to take a point away. <laughs> So for me, you know, in a, a nine-hole game, like if I get a seven or eight, you know, I've done pretty good. That means I've only hit a couple of people along the way. Not so good at playing golf, but I do like to watch golf. I watch the Masters. And I even went to a practice session of the Masters one time. Well, a few years ago, some of you may remember this, Greg Norman and Nick Faldo, came right down to the end of the tournament. Norman went in in the last, the last day of play and he was six strokes ahead, or six strokes you know, to the good. And he lost it all to this guy, Nick Fowler, right at the very end. And they, they, they showed the two of them coming together after the last play and uh, Faldo and um, Norman, they just hugged right there on the green. And they were both crying. So uh, everybody thought, well, you know, Fowler's crying because he just won this thing and he was so surprised about it. And that Greg Norman was, uh, was crying because he had lost. He, he'd had the, 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 she was ahead and had he lost. But that wasn't the reason Norman was crying. Uh, he did an interview with Sports Illustrated. And in the interview, it turns out that his dad had never hugged him. That, that he'd spent his whole life growing up. His dad would be on a business trip. He would come home, he'd shake his hand. And, and Greg always wanted to be hugged. So when Faldo hugged him at the end of play, after he'd given his best and messed up, it, it was like this moment of affirmation. He said, I've never been hugged like that before. You know what he's longing for? Love. Love. And that's, that's what predestination is finally about. It's about God's love for us and all people. And if, if anyone comes to believe, to faith, it's because God makes it possible in us. We could never do that ourselves. And if we stay in faith, it's, it's because God does that in us. We can never do that ourselves. And God does it not because we're worthy, not because we're better, not because we're superior, not because we're entitled. God does that because God loves you and me and through us to love all people. 
I actually think that's good news. And I hope you do as well. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Spirit. Amen.